Special thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us into their space for today's episode. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I invite you all to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgfund.org or on Twitter at DGFund. Something new is supported by listeners like you. Visit joelbnew.com and help this podcast continue to grow, thrive, and be a part of the creative conversation. Listeners, welcome to the season four premiere of Something New, a musical theater podcast. I'm your host, Joel B. New. I can't believe we're sitting here on season four, you guys. Senior year. This is it. I mean, it's not it. I mean, we're this is not the final season. But it feel doesn't it feel like you know, we've known each other since freshman year, and remember when we'd all sit in the cafeteria and eat ice cream for breakfast because we could Maybe maybe you still do that, and there's no judging. We're, sen- we're seniors now. We're older, we're wiser, we've written musicals, and and we're just going to shake some things up a bit. Guys, it's been so long. Like Usually I take like a three-month break, and this was a four-month break for, for, for various reasons. But, uh, but oh my gosh, I've missed you guys so much. I'm sitting here drinking coffee out of my Something New mug, season one. And drinking what's probably, I think, the last drop of peppermint mocha creamer that I have in the house, uh, which means that the holiday season is finally coming to a close. Some people say that Epiphany is the day where the holidays officially come to a close. But for me, it's when the peppermint mocha is out. And then that day is today. But today's about new beginnings because it's the new it's a new season. So that works out just fine. You guys are my peppermint mocha now. So as I said, this is our fourth year doing this. There's gonna be a lot of new elements, so just, you know, let's all get loosey-goosey and play with it. Uh, for example, you may have you may have noticed that our theme music sounds a little different than it has in the past. And you are correct. Uh, my friend Joel Dickinson, who's an awesome DJ, uh, has done a really, really bang-up job remixing the uh, the Something New theme song, and I'm really excited to share that with you. That will be part of the intro and the outro, maybe when I, you know, do a little commercial or two or something like that, but, um, but that's going to be around, and I hope you like that as much as I like that, because it just makes me smile. Um, let's see, we're also going to be adding a visual component to uh, to season four whenever possible or whenever appropriate. In this episode, in fact, our our singer Gabe Violet uh, nicely let me uh, video record our uh, song session, and you can find that on YouTube. So look for that. Gabe is awesome, and I'm really excited about this song. This episode is also being transcribed for my hearing impaired fans as well as those who just like to read 
you can uh, you'll, you'll be able to there will be a link to download the transcript of my interview with Mr. Arden um, with the with the episode description and and in my newsletter. Another thing we're doing in season four is sometimes there will be multiple guests per episode. Maybe there will be a different singer than the person I'm interviewing. Um, so far, I've got twelve interviewees lined up, and their careers include hosting, director, choreographer, producers, activists, nutritionists, fight directors, financial planners, and there is a podcast alumni reunion currently in the works, and I'm really excited to share all of those wonderful people and their talents and their stories with you in season four. And finally, thank you all so much for tuning in to yet another season of Something New. I wouldn't be doing this without you, and I'm super appreciative that people are still listening and having a good time. I'm still having a good time. And without further ado, here comes episode 401, my interview with Michael Arden, featuring a performance by Gabe Violet. Enjoy. This is Joel B. New, and you're listening to Something New, my chance to talk with some of the savviest performers in the theater industry, hear their stories, work through and premiere a brand new original song, and get to the heart of what makes them the working, multifaceted artists they have come to be. Today's guest artist is a performer and director. He recently directed Deaf West's production of Spring Awakening at both the Wallace and Inner City Arts in Los Angeles which has subsequently become that musical's first Broadway revival, now playing at the Brooks Atkinson Theatre through January 24th. Other directing credits include L.A. Ronde and, for the record, John Hughes. As an actor, he has appeared in Deaf West's Big River and Pippin, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Times They Are a-Changin', Bear, and Aspects of Love. His film and TV credits include Source Code, Bride Wars, the Odd Life of Timothy Green, and Anger Management on FX. He is a presidential scholar in the arts and is artistic director of the LA-based site-specific theater company, The Forest of Arden. Obviously, I'm talking about Michael Arden. Michael Arden, thanks for being on my show today. So happy to be here, John. I'm happy to have you. You're my first episode back, season four. Well, let's get it started. Let's a bang. Let's do it. Glad to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you. Um, so... I don't know if I ever... We haven't officially met, but like I first met you back in 2004. You were doing uh, this thing called Art Song Dance with Ricky Ian Gordon. That's right, yeah. And we, we did that a few times. Uh, yeah? It was, a, it was a collaboration with Ricky Ian Gordon and Sean Curran Dance Company. Yes. Uh, which I don't even know if they're still dancing, that company. I hope I so. I hope really so, incredible. too. Yeah, it was a beautiful yeah, we, production. Yeah, we worked on it um, at Jacob's Pillow. And then we did here at the Joyce. Theater. That's where I saw it. At yeah, the Joyce. it was really exciting. It was a bunch of songs by Ricky and yeah, it was incredible dances. Beautiful, and that's when I became uh, an official member of the Michael Arden fan club. Oh, yeah, goodness. <laughs> no, um, no. I was going to ask you where you come from, but then I was like, why don't I just Google you? Um, <laughs> and did you um, did you know that you have your own Wikipedia page? I I, I do know that. I yeah. don't know how accurate it all is, but I am aware of it. <laughs> I always feel like you I mean, everybody, made it. Everybody yeah. Googles themselves every yeah. now and then yeah. just to make sure. I have a Google like, alert. My, my name is alerted. leaked. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knock on wood. Um, so according to Wikipedia, you come from Texas. How yes. right is that? That, that is right. That is I'm, right. I'm, I was born in Midland, Texas, which is a little town in West Texas. Um, midway between Dallas and El Paso is what okay. it's called, Midland. 
Nice. That makes sense. And when did you come to New York and for what purpose? I came to New York right after high school, um, where I had actually done my last two years of high school at the Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan, mm-hmm. which is a boarding school. And uh, actually, a lot of people who are now here working, I went to high school with there. Um, Alexandra Silber was in my class, and an actor named Nick Westrait, and Dane Laffrey, who designed Spring Awakening, was my high school roommate. A bunch oh, of us are here. Wow. Santina Fontana and I were interlocking, interlocking together, and... Uh, yeah, it was a great little crew we had going. Um, but yeah, I moved to New York right after high school um, in 2001 and uh, went to school at Juilliard here yeah. in, the, in the acting program. Nice. Now, I knew you first as a performer, uh, but I'm really excited about this new avenue, or of at least it feels relatively new to me, This uh, the title of director. Is that is that fair to say? Does that, does that still feel relatively new to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, I've... I've you been, do have a show on Broadway. I've, yeah. I've been working as an actor for a while now, um, and uh, directing for a few years, so it's definitely a new sort of uh, series of chapters in my, in my book, but... I'm when really, did you feel the... The impulse to, to direct. I think I had always really wanted to. I mean, when I was a kid, I would like force. I I lived in a in a trailer park actually when I was a kid, and I used to like gather up all the kids from the park and try to put on productions like in the fields and build sets, and I probably quite tyrannically made them participate. <laughs> um, so I've always had a little bit of it in me, and uh, and I took a directing class in high school, and you know stuff like that, but had always sort of. Uh, been on stage as an actor although I, I, I tried to sort of continue work in other areas of the field because I was really interested in lots of things. I interned as a lighting designer for a summer um, you know just all, all over. I've, I've done some composing I sort of am really interested in all aspects and think it can't hurt to learn as much as you can about the field you're in. And then a few years ago I, uh, you know, probably eight years ago or so I started Asking directors if I could assist them or be an associate, and yeah, stuff, yeah, which I felt was extremely important. And I asked if I could shadow producers for. I, I shadowed the, the the production side of it during Newsies, and so I sort of like huh. done all these sort of you know just gone to people go to people that I respect and and say hey I would love to learn more. Can I watch you or can I shadow you or can I assist you? And I think it's really important for Agreed. for you know. There are many people who are really comfortable and thrilled doing just, like, being an actor or whatever, but that yeah, was never really... I, I always wanted to to um, be in other areas, so... How long before The Forest of Arden came about, which is a, which is a Shakespeare reference? It is a Shakespeare reference. And not just a name, reference to your last name. <laughs> it's actually a Shakespeare <laughs> reference, It's um, but also to my last name. Uh, it's the name of the forest that they retreat into and in as you like it. Forest of Arden. So it, it always seemed to me like a place where people could go for refuge. Um, I was living in LA, which I still do part of the part of the time, and uh, working on a television series um, with Charlie Sheen called Anger Management. And I had just re- was really missing theater and had noticed a lot of my friends were really desperate to create new work and do new work. And so I sort of started this theater collective called The Forest of Arden, and we did our first show was a production of an adaptation of La Ronde that I adapted. Um, 
actually L.A. Rond. Um, <laughs> so it's not La Ronde, it's L.A. Rond. It's sort of set in Los Angeles, and oh. it was site-specific and took place in ten different locations throughout a neighborhood. Wow. And Alexandra Silver was actually in that, speaking of. She was in that production. And, uh, it was really, really fun, and out of that, this production of Spring Awakening was sort of born out of that company hmm. and this collaboration with Deaf West. Was the 2003 revival of Big River your first foray? Yeah, that was them. the first time I'd ever met a deaf person, actually. Really? Um, was my audition for Big River. Huh. I just happened to get the audition and went and said, okay, you have to learn some sign language. And I did my best and met uh, another actor named Tyrone Giordano, who played Huck Finn. And we auditioned together and I was like, how is this going to work? But I spoke my lines and an interpreter behind me signed and he signed his lines and interpreter voice for him and it actually just really worked and sort of uh, I'll never forget that day because it was really illuminating in the fact that just in the sense that art can sort of actually ascend and above language in a way it can sort of break down barriers so um, that was my first experience working with not only Deaf West but anyone deaf and uh, sign language and I learned my lines in sign language and then became more and more adept at the language and it grew to be something that I've really loved and yeah, it's definitely ha- have a point of view about and yeah, it's certainly yeah. set you down a path yeah not one that I ever expected or sort of like you know a lot of people who sign or are interested in ASL or deaf culture have like a deaf friend or a deaf family member or a yeah, parent or and no, no, it was really just, you know, the universe opening a door for me. Do you consider yourself fluent in ASL now, or um, is that... I, I definitely conversationally fluent, yeah. Why is sign language theater uh, such an important art form to you? Like, do you consider it its own thing? Because, like, as I was doing very light research for this episode, um, like, s- some, some websites to call, you know, definitely define deaf community as, like, its own culture. Yeah. And so do you... Do you see sign language theater as obviously as an extension of, you know? Well, I just think it's I think theater. it's just good theater. I don't yeah. think it's like I, I think it's a type of theater, but I think, you know, I, I'd like to hope that at least with Spring Awakening, it's not we're not doing sign language theater. We're just yeah, you're just telling, doing good theater. We're just telling theater through the lens of a certain time and place and context, which happens to be these deaf kids at a time when sign language wasn't allowed, you know, so it's sort of just a context for it. I haven't really thought that it's like, like making deaf theater or making hearing theater. I think you're just making theater. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's, um, the use of sign language in theater is incredibly exciting and it, it's able to illuminate the text in a visual way, uh, which, you know, you go to the theater, it's not like you're just reading your, uh, it's, for a hearing person, half of it is visual, if not more. So, I think it's a way of physicalizing language um, that can sort of help help one us as the audience understand meaning a bit more because you know you think about the human body and the head and brain and mouth are, are the size of a basketball and the body is the size of you know twenty basketballs. <laughs> I think well if if we're if we're trying to communicate with our body, then it might actually we might have an opportunity as a theater maker to be more successful in that. How was that show selected for Deaf West, and when did you come on board? It was actually, um, 
Death West came to me after I had done L.A. Ronde and asked if I would be interested in working with them on something. And the idea came from my my soon-to-be husband, Andy Miantis, actually. He said, well, why don't you do Spring Awakening? It could really work, because it's about people who were denied a voice. And it's about people struggling to communicate. And what better, you know, what better treatment of it than with what Deaf West does. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Luckily, I'm smart marrying the smartest person I know. <laughs> and, uh, and so we met with DJ Kurz, who's the artistic director, and sort of had a pitch and said, you know, what if the root of the problem of the play comes from the fact that Vendla is a deaf child of a hearing parent and her mother doesn't know the signs. Just doesn't physically know how to tell her uh, where babies where babies come from. Um, and that sort of, you know, is a problem. <laughs> and it's a really simple and clear uh, way of way of illuminating the problem. Um, so that's how it came about. We did a workshop. Uh, we worked on a few numbers, and I enlisted Spencer Liff, who had done L.A. Ronde with me, and um, my associate, Blake Silver, who I'd worked with on, um, on that as well. And started putting it together. Yeah. So, so scripting the play with American Sign Language, how how much did you help inform that? Yeah. Well, we had a, a team of three uh, ASL masters who did the translation, but I was very much involved in all of that. Um, which, I, you know, getting the actual meaning because it's not a literal language. It's not like a no, word for yeah, word. Yeah. Uh, thing. Um, and I wanted to make sure that both the deaf audience and deaf audiences and people who were hearing who also signed weren't it's not like we were getting conflicting information mm-hmm. um, so that was definitely a huge part of the work was actual you know we, we translated the show and yeah. um, our three ASL masters um, Anthony Natalie Elizabeth Green and Shoshana Stern were paramount in that um, and then we also had our ASL consultant Linda Bove who people might know as Linda the librarian from Sesame Street yeah. Uh, yeah. she came in and helped with uh with sort of fresh set of eyes halfway through and helping the hearing actors produce the signs. So sort of a twofold thing, you know, there's so cool. the translation and then the production of the sign because what good is a translation if you can't understand yeah. it? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's many of the company, in fact, most have really like learned a new language. There was really only one person who came in with ASL experience of the hearing company. Uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of work, but I, it was nice, you know, when you get to spend that much time really examining something, it's incredibly helpful. You get to say, oh, well, why are we translating it actually helped me understand the text more. Yeah. Because I had to truly, like, find a, you know, it's like I had to write, yeah, it's like when you look at a piece of Shakespeare and you say, oh, like, how do I translate this? Yeah. And, get it to mean, you know, emotionally what it means and literally what it means and, and, and all those things. And Stephen Sater's lyrics are so much poetry that, that it's just, yeah, you it's know. beautiful, very visual, very visceral, mm-hmm. and not very literal a lot of the time. I think it's helpful to this audience to get to see his poetry physically on a body because mm-hmm. it's, it is so, you sort of understand it in a way that you might not if you're just listening to it. And then f- with sign language, people often come up with an, a sign for their name. Yeah. Well, um, you, you don't come up with a sign for your name. You're given a sign. You're given. For your name. This is very important. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a distinction. So, 
Yeah, I waited a very long time to get my name signed. Uh, but you were given your name signed by a, a, a deaf person. Um, and usually it has to do with like some character trait or something funny one does. And What's your, your, what's your sign? Uh, mine is a little embarrassing. It's this. Um, because it was given to me by Shoshana Stern, who is our ASL master, one of them. Um, because she, it all, the whole idea of this came from my hot mind. And so that's... Oh, I like that. We're going to uh, provide a transcript of this episode. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Mine, uh, mine was given to me by my friend Colleen Smith, who was the only deaf person in our high school in Nebraska. And what is yours? It was uh, Joel. So it's Joel. the J, um, where she thought I was cute. Oh, so, that's nice. Yeah, it was nice. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm curious how the, how the signs for the names of the characters came about. Yeah, well, we just wanted them to be identifiable and simple. Yeah. Um, Melchior, because he thought the M to the head, he was a thinker. Oh, uh, okay. Um, okay. Venla, I mean, usually masculine signs are more or up here, or higher, feminine signs yes. lower, but so Venla, so mostly letters. Um, yeah. Was sort of how, where we took the, uh, because they have to be introduced very early on before we know much about the characters. Yeah. Um, Hunchins is up here because this is close to horny. And he's a little horny. <laughs> yeah. Horny So, um, and some of the, like, the, the teachers, like, uh, Knock and Rook and Knuckle Dick are also, yeah. there's a bit of joke in the signing, meaning, like, Dick Bitch. And, and there's, there, there's some, like, dirty signs within the name signs to give the, the, um, the deaf audience a sort of sense of the humor of those names. Too. Some, some nice Easter eggs. Yeah, so we spent a lot of time with developing those name signs, but I think, I think they, they did a really nice job. Yeah, I really appreciated them. Um, so this is Spring Awakening's first Broadway revival, mm-hmm. and you know I was certainly around when the first, last one was, was here, and mm-hmm. as were you. Um, how, how important was it for you to honor that original production? Oh, how? very, very important. I mean, I was a huge fan of the first as production. Was, as was I. I. I, hope I. I hope I've honored Michael Mayer's work in, in this um, happened to be at like the first preview at the Atlantic. Wow. So I really saw it from its inception here in on stage in New York. Um, and uh, yeah, I really wanted to, to honor what he had done. There are a couple nods we have this one character uses a microphone. Yeah. Uh, which is a bit of a nod to, to Michael's work. And um, I think your production is beautiful. I don't even you. compare that. No, I think like, they're, they're very, I think they're very different. Things. I think they're sort of about, different things in a way mm-hmm. I think um, the deaf context gives it a, an inward yeah. feel like it's I think this one is more reflective whereas the other one was a bit more in your face ra- or... rageful yeah. if that's the right word like, um, I don't know about you but like the obviously because I'm 10 years older like the kids felt much younger to me mm-hmm. this time mm-hmm. well they're supposed to I mean they're they're supposed 14 to 14 yeah. years old yeah like 13 and the, so I, I really that was something we talked a lot about about you know age. obviously the actors aren't quite that young um, no no but but there were some, well, especially um, the actress playing Venla mm-hmm. whose name escapes me Sandra May Frank she's fantastic yeah she's she's, yeah. she's stunning and yeah and really I was I felt very protective of her it was very important to me in casting of the play I was like we, we have to believe these are all kids fumbling you know what's that Sarah McLaughlin song "Fumbling Toward Ecstasy." Uh, if you remember that, <laughs> I do name remember of that. that. But that—that uh-huh. that actually is what you know was very important to me. That Melchior had to be—you had to believe that this was the first time these kids had ever touched. Yeah, you know, in in the scene at the at the oak tree, and then in the hayloft, it needs to be. I mean, these kids don't know what they're doing. They're yeah. they're children, 
stumbling into something, and she's got a line about fumbling mutely with their rude hands, which, I, I mean, what better sort of line? Yeah. Um, there were a couple I was of like, lines. no, they have to be young. They have to seem, they have to be kids. That's that's what makes it a tragedy. Otherwise, like, if they, otherwise it's just um, another day at the, in the back of a, in the back of the car, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Another roll in the hay. What time did you get here? This episode is brought to you in part by Non Equity the Musical by Danielle Terzinski and Paul D. Mills. Non Equity the Musical is a funny and heartwarming new musical about the life of non union actors in New York. In the face of rejections, degrading survival jobs, and 5 a.m. open calls, this colorful cast of characters learned that living the dream is not what they thought it would be. Amid infectious songs and witty lyrics, see passion turn into results as we witness main character Wendy refuse to give up on her dream and find her own way of achieving it. This is a very talented team of writers that you should all be looking out for. Non-Equity the Musical is available on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Google Play, Amazon Music, Amazon On Demand, Rhapsody, and more. Phew. Check it out. Lucky to have an incredible acting company, but uh-huh. in the design of it, and, and to really give you know, create this world for the audience, so they really understood what Germany might have been like at the time. Yeah, I, mean, I really like kept going back to okay, no, this is this is Germany at this time. You know, that's why that Chiron is right on at the beginning when you walk in. Yeah, it's very important that like this is a specific time and place. This isn't like. You know, sometimes when we go into Once songs, in, in the original production, it's very much like, this is now, we're putting out a microphone, this is a sort of mirror to nature in the audience, and here, you know, we, they can't hold mics, obviously, because they're signing, and they yeah. ha- and you have to look at each other when you sign, so it really yeah. is contained within this time and, and space. Um, and this is probably my naivete, but have, have there been productions of, like, new work that incorporate... ASL, or is it primarily an existing show that tends to get this sort of treatment? Um, it depends. I know there's quite a few plays that new works that are enlisting ASL and 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 deaf characters, which is really thrilling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fabulous play on uh, called Tribes that was here a few years back. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That Russell Harvard actually um, starred in um, with a deaf character, and it's really about deafness. Um, and stuff is popping up all over the place. So I think there is actually, um, people are starting to, writers are starting to write deaf characters, or you know, um, which is exciting because yeah. there's incredible stories to tell and it's... Uh, incredible actors to utilize. Incredible actors to utilize and also I think a very interesting topic and, and uh, being able to introduce deaf culture to hearing culture, I mean. It's interesting. It's like it's an American culture, and it it is really the only language born out of America. It's not England has a different sign language than America really? does. Yeah, completely different language. So it really is a language born out of this specific culture, which I think is, you know, exciting because an American audience will understand more sign, I think, than they than they think they would because mm-hmm. it is born out of our experience and culture. So I'm very fascinated by that, and I hope that writers and directors continue to develop work with deaf characters because 
they have a lot to say. No pun intended. Uh, what types of shows or stories better lend themselves to this type of storytelling? Stories about communication. Stories about when people separate. I think about about community, about marginalization. I think there's you know imagine being a deaf person in in a, in a hearing world. You, you probably are denied so much because people don't think of you. Any story about that might lend itself. I don't know. I mean, I would be thrilled to see Into the Woods in ASL. I mean, there was a great article yesterday that came out on Playbill that Ben Rimmelauer wrote about what ten shows should be done, you know, with ASL. Oh, no way. Um, And it's a really interesting read, too. How does your experience as a performer inform or even enhance your directing approach and, and vice versa? I'm so glad that I'm a performer and an actor because I think it helps me like I, I can see when an actor needs help, and I can I I've worked with directors in the past who have been incredibly unhelpful to the actor yeah. because they're sort of thinking in product as opposed to process, and um, so I think it's you know I, I I hope that I can communicate with an actor and ask questions that are helpful and and allow them to do their best work without sort of asking for a result. And when you go back to doing an acting gig mm-hmm. um, after you've directed something, how does that... What do you bring back with you? Uh, um, just, a, just a sense of sort of... I'm, I'm doing a bit more... I'm trying to sort of do a bit more work on my own. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I sort of can imagine what the director wants. But in a way, you sort of have to forget all that stuff. Because an actor, you're like, the best actors really only know what they walk in the room as the character knowing, and the rest they just have to be open to. Um, so it's it's an interesting back and forth of sort of taking off one hat and putting on another cap. Would you ever wear both? I don't know. I think that would be really difficult. Um, then again... Perhaps, yeah. Never I, 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 I don't know. I think it would be hard to sort of get the overall picture. I think if I, yeah, I, I would definitely need a very good associate, which I luckily have. His name is Blake Silver. Um, Not that I'm going to put you in a box, but how, like, how do you define yourself as a director? Like, I look at, I look at your work, and I think, you know, I think about like John Doyle. At least, like when he first came, became like an international name in theater. Like, you know, he had like his thing, and we right. all we can see that and go like. Oh, that's a John Doyle production. Right. You know, do you do you want your name and like sign language to to be synonymous in that kind of way, or not necessarily? I mean, yeah. I, I hope other directors work. Yeah, me too. With sign language, and and um, you know, and I, I it's not going to be what like my next project is probably not going to be have sign language in it. Um, so I don't know if I I don't know how to answer that question. I just that's okay. I, I, no. I just hope to do good, good, good and varied work. <laughs> you know, I hope to just continue asking difficult questions in theater and both in musicals and plays and I'd love to direct concerts and if I have a listener out there who's looking to transition into directing Mm -hmm. um, what's something you wish you had known at the start or any like mantras that you carry with you it takes a long time it takes a while to get a project the fact that Spring Awakening happened like this is sort of a miracle it was very quick yeah Um, but there was two years of work before we came to Mm. New York yeah Workshops and did it almost falling apart and doing a small production and then it almost falling apart and then doing a big production and then almost falling apart. So, you know, it's just sort of patience and um, perseverance and knowing that you are really steering 
the ship and and uh, the distances can be great sometimes the oceans you must cross as a director in steering that ship um, so just keep on and don't be afraid to ask for for advice from people you respect because there's no better compliment than than being asked for advice I'm not a big fan of asking people like what are you doing next um, but I also kind of know what's happening next I don't know um, <laughs> Well, I, I saw that the, the Hunchback cast recording is coming out January yes. 22nd. January 22nd. Very it's nice. It's going to be very exciting. I can't wait to hear it. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. Thr- it was thrilling to record, actually. Yeah, the idea of hearing you sing out there makes me very excited. <laughs> um, and then Spring Awakening is going on tour in mm-hmm. 2017. Yes. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's very, very yeah. exciting. I'm When we started working on Spring Awakening, I, I just said, I just want kids to see this everywhere. I just want not only to be exposed to deaf culture and American Sign Language, but to hear and see this story and hopefully, you know, if I've done anything or we've done anything, is open up, it can begin a conversation with maybe it's a parent and a child or maybe it's like a parent and a parent or maybe, you know, just um, I want as many people to see it as possible. So going on tour is actually, I would say as I'm as much or if, if not more excited about that than even coming to Broadway. So I'm really, really excited about that. And the people, I always say to the cast, I said, you know, you gotta, you have to play to the back row of the, of the balcony because sometimes the person in the back row who paid the smallest amount is the person who needs to, needs this story the most. Mm. And, you know, you think about kids who don't have the privilege of getting to come to New York, you know, uh, it's going to be so exciting to to be able to expose them to to this wonderful play and and this deaf what deaf west does which i think is really exciting and, and um yeah so that is that's a while from that's, now but yeah 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 but, but I'm still really excited. i'm really really excited i have a quite a national audience so they i'm excited to keep apprised on that and that my listeners We'll get to see this production. Yeah, and we're still putting together what cities we're going to. So if you're out there and listening to this and there's a touring house near you, write them, call them, say, bring Spring Awakening here because we'd love to get as many cities in as possible. What would you like to put out there for yourself? What do you... Um, I want to continue directing and and creating new works and looking at old works too. I would love to direct some Shakespeare. Uh, Work in non-conventional spaces... Yeah, sort of trying, yeah anything. trying to trying to do all these right now. Um, so I've got about you know seven things. Like I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm in a kitchen and nothing's nothing's ready to be uh, served to the diner yet. But uh, you know everything's simmering on different in different pots right now. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I'm one of those is done pretty soon and ready to be eaten, <laughs> consumed. Cool. Well, um, I'll I'll be hungry whenever it happens. Oh, good. I'm glad you're extending that metaphor as long as possible. Thank you. <laughs> I love me a, a good metaphor. Yeah. I guess the last thing I might I would say is that it's just so important to support your fellow artist, no matter where you are, and and to become involved in a community and and use the the art that you make what in whatever sort of side you you come at it from to begin conversation within communities. I mean that's why. I wanted to create this company in LA. I said, oh, there, there is a need for this. There is a want for this. Um, there is a lack of something. And so I think it's our jobs as artists and and um, and people who 
support and create art to, to like continue that. And it's not about Broadway. It's it's really about uh, providing the American public with with a chance to reflect on themselves and begin to ask questions. And I think you know people say you can't change the world with theater, but you can because it it's just in a very small way. But yeah, it starts with a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. Uh, a, a bomb can like change the world very quickly, but like a conversation or or a bringing together of, of people with different ideas and points of view is is um is probably a much better way. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I agree. No, I would I would think so for sure. Okay, and now comes the part where we set up the song. As you know, I like my podcast seasons to be working in tandem with a creative project of mine. And this season, I have decided to dedicate the first half to creating my very first solo EP entitled Cabot Cove. I'm trying these songs out on singers who aren't me, uh, primarily because, honestly, the more the merrier. And it's easier for me to look at my songs and be a little less precious about them if someone else is wearing them, if that makes sense. In March 2016, we'll be launching a Kickstarter campaign to help produce Cabot Cove. The first song that you'll be hearing from that album is entitled The Corpse Danced at Midnight, performed by Gabe Violet. I chose Gabe to sing the song not only because he's awesome, uh, but he was also in the original, the original production of Spring Awakening, so I thought that was a fun tie-in with Michael's episode. So some fun geekery things about The Corpse Danced at Midnight. Uh, that is actually the title of the first novel that Angela Lansbury's character wrote on Murder, She Wrote. The song itself is not related to the plot of that fictitious novel or the TV series at all. I just kind of took the title and ran with it. As I continue to work on the songs, that is the intent, not, you know, not always taking the titles literally, because, you know, maybe I should have seen this coming, but as I was looking at the titles that people were voting on, I was like, oh, this, this could be a very dark, um, murderous album, but, um, but we don't want that. We want something, we want something fun. I look forward to sharing sneak peeks of all of these songs with you, performed by my guest artists, and then in a couple months' time, hopefully be able to debut the fully realized versions of these songs in album form. Much, much gratitude to the good people of Murder We Spoke, which is a podcast, not surprisingly, about Murder She Wrote, where Marissa, Melissa, and Ben will watch an episode, and then they recap it in a hilarious and loving and genuine way. I'm a huge fan of theirs, and they've been so amazing and helping get the word out about this album as it's in its starting phases. So if you like Murder, She Wrote, and I know that you do, please, please do yourself a favor and subscribe to Murder, We Spoke on iTunes. This performance will be available to stream on SoundCloud and a video on YouTube. So now I'm going to close out the episode with Michael Arden, and then we'll get right to The Corpse Danced at Midnight from the Cabot Cove EP, performed by Gabe Violet. Are you pretty active on social media? Uh, yeah, I'm on, I'm on the Twitter. You're on the Twitter? The Instagram. That's, at Michael that's Arden. It. Michael Arden, just my name. Great. Nice and simple. 
Um, let's see, be sure that you follow Michael Arden on all things social media, as well as myself. Please go spring, see Spring Awakening if you're here in the city. It goes through January 24th. It goes through January 24th, and uh, please, please come see it. We only have a few weeks left, and it's yeah. really... I'm not just saying this because I directed it. It's unlike anything you'll ever see on Broadway, perhaps ever again. So um, I encourage you to come see something that's truly an event. I, I would... I wholeheartedly agree with that. It was it's such a beautiful and special thing. It's an experience for sure. Yeah, yeah. and to see this talent yeah. that is like truly some of they're all stars Mind and, and so yeah. many of them have been so often overlooked. So to be able to see them mm-hmm. um, shine so bright is is truly a blessing. From the music hall at DGF, this is Joel B. New and I'm Michael Arden saying thank you for dropping by for something new. Bye guys. The corpse had a dead end job that suited her fine. She sat at a desk. It started at nine The corpse had a living bow Who wasn't that great They should have split up In 2008 But that's another story One I'm not equipped to be standing around and critiquing The point I'm trying to make is she's dead Metaphorically speaking The corpse danced at midnight To all 40 of the top 40 hits She didn't need ID or a date or a pulse She didn't give two shits She stayed on the dance floor Until three or four or sometimes even five The corpse danced at midnight Cause that's the only time she felt alive The corpse never stood in line They knew her by sight They ushered her in Night after night Corpse never paid for drinks, and Kojak was free. And every night, she sat next to me. But that's another story, one that would make me the poor sap that went kissing and telling. It always ends with me drinking alone. This is far more compelling. The corpse danced at midnight to all 40 of the top 40 hits. She didn't need ID or a date or a pulse. She didn't give two shits. She stayed on the dance floor until three or four, sometimes even five. The corpse danced at midnight cause that's the only time she felt alive. Why can't she see her own COD? Why can't
can't she know? This poor, poor corpse took its final breath long, long ago. Long, long ago. Long, long ago. The corpse danced at midnight to all 40 of the top 40 hits. Or a date or a pulse She didn't give two shits She stayed on the dance floor Until three or four Sometimes even five The corpse danced at midnight Cause that's the only time she felt alive That's the only time she felt alive That's the only time she felt alive that's the only time she felt alive.